reading from 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 22 to 25, and if you would uh, all stand in honor of God's Word. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. This is God's unchanging word. You be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. What a good day it is to worship the Lord together. I was so blessed this morning. I got here really early and watched the setup team because I wanted to see how the donuts were made. How did everything come together? And I counted 31 people here doing setup this morning. And that was such a blessing. I want to thank every one of you for your work in doing that. All the branch groups that, that tag team in and out of that situation. It is such a blessing to see you guys running around here, setting things up, getting things ready. I hope, uh, I look forward to seeing that over and over and over again with me sitting in the corner drinking a cup of coffee, watching you guys work like that it was very inspiring. It was very inspiring. Thank you. Uh, there are a lot of things on a, uh, a pastor's job description. Set up is sometimes one of them. Uh, this Sunday wasn't, but I'm sure I'll get my turn. But there's all sorts of things in my job description. Things that I do. I do counseling. I do weddings and I do funerals and, and, and I do, uh, uh, administration. I moderate meetings. All sorts of things that are on my job description. That some of them are things that you see me do and some of them are things that you never see me do because they're, they're under the surface. They're the duck, you know, with his legs moving fast under the surface. But one thing that you do see me do all the time and that is an important thing is preaching. That's something that you see me doing up front uh, all the time as a part of my job description. And there's several reasons for that, and we're going to look at several of them in the text today. If you do have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, keep them open to First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, starting around verse 22, but even a few verses before that, to get the context of what he's doing here today. The text today is a chain of ideas that ends in Jesus. So if you're taking notes today and you're waiting for those three points, um, good luck. If you please share that with me if you get it, because I don't think it's in here, but please share that with me if you get those nice three points. Really what we have here is more like a fuse on a stick of dynamite. We've got a series of ideas that are working together and in the end, is Jesus. And it's literally dynamite because that's what's going on here. It says that Christ, 
He is the power and wisdom of God. The word there for power is dunamis. It's the word that we get the word dynamite from. And so there's something powerful going on here that the Apostle Paul is trying to get across to his audience, uh, a mixed audience of mostly folks from the Greek non-Jewish background, but some Jews mixed in there together. And he's talking about the fact that the Greeks are searching for truth and the Jews already have the truth in the scriptures. But both of them in their own way worship that truth. In their own way, both of them feel like they've already found their, their culture and their way of handling truth is superior to everybody else. But the problem is, Paul says, that they have made a Jesus, a Christ, out of the truth, and therefore they don't need the truth of Christ. You understand what I'm saying there? Is that they've taken truth, whether it's the Jews that own it because God gave it to them in the revealed Scriptures, or the Greeks who are out there discovering it, looking for it everywhere they go, they've deified that very search process. And frankly, for several hundred years before the time of Christ, around 400 to be more exact, they didn't require a Jesus to do that. And so Christ isn't the end of their search and the Jews either. They were doing just fine without the Messiah being here. Frankly, the Messiah gets in the way at this point of the way that they have Judaism set up. And so neither group needed Jesus to come along. Well, Paul addresses that. And rather than lecturing them about their problems with making uh, a, a Christ out of truth, he says, guys, I have good news for you. He's actually at the end of your hopes, your dreams, and your search. There's a time to lecture unbelievers and tell them how messed up they are, and there's a time to say to them, the very thing you've been searching for is right here. And that's what Paul does here in the text today. People like you and me, both groups get the rebuke and the refreshing that they need through Jesus Christ. And not just this general Jesus, not just this overall general Jesus, not the baby Jesus in the manger. They get Christ and Him crucified. That's what meets their search their desires, their hunger, that sums it all up. They see the indescribable wow of God dying. And in that moment, they begin to understand that's what they've been looking for. That's the power and the miracles that, that the Jews have been looking for to certify God's Word, they found it in that moment. And what the Greeks have been looking for, the key, the, the mysterion, the key to unlock the secrets of the universe and being, that's it. Right there, a dead 30-year-old on a wooden stake. Right there. 
So he unpacks that for us, not just in this text, but throughout the rest of his ministry is unpacking that truth. And what he calls it, the main way we do it, is the preaching of Christ and him crucified. And so we're going to talk about that today, the topic of preaching and the most magnificent object of any true preaching, Jesus Christ. But what is teaching? Now we got a little tension going on here. Because we all know what teaching is. You homeschoolers know what teaching is. You folks who go to a more traditional school, you know what teaching is. It's a transfer of information with some practical ideas on how, on where it came from and how it's applied. And that's teaching. And that can make up a lot of preaching. Preaching certainly involves some kind of transfer of information. I can't just stand up here and yell at you about nothing. It has to be on a topic directing you toward something. It encourages you. It rebukes you. And you do all that from the firm foundation of the inerrant Word of God. But preaching then adds a twist. The twist of preaching is that it's about a story. The gospel I don't care how you look at it, from which perspective you look at it, is definitely a narrative. It's a story that starts in the garden, meanders its way through the old ups and downs of the Old Testament, where it doesn't look like there's even going to be a son of David from which the Messiah to come. It goes through all those twists and turns. The prophets are there and they're announcing, yes, Israel, you've blown it over and over and over again. But out of the stump, they will come a little sprout and it'll be Jesse's seed. And it's going to come out and he's going to be the Messiah. And then they wait and they wait and they wait. And they wait. And it doesn't look like anything's going to happen. And all of a sudden, it starts to come up. Just a little bit, it starts to come up. Then the twist comes in the story. We'll get to that later. But it's definitely a story. Preaching is then the action of getting you into that story, figuring out where you are in the story of the gospel. If you are still looking at the gospel in an external way and you're analyzing it, maybe you understand it quite well, but you've never found your place in that story, then you've never personally interacted with the gospel. It's been like studying a bug underneath a microscope and not you actually going and entering into that bug's life and finding some way to transition into that situation where you really get into that bug's life, where you enter into the food chain. That's what I'm talking about that the gospel preaching does. 
is that it's not just analyzing the situation, understanding the mathematical equation of I've got a sin debt, I need something on the other side of that equal sign, I've got to find some way to fix that sin debt. Aha, I have found one of the many offers, and it appears to be the superior one, as I have analyzed Hinduism, as I've analyzed the other permutations of Christianity and the cults, I believe I have found the best one, and I will then solve the equation. Well, good for you. You solve the equation. But that doesn't bring healing and life and satisfaction and joy to anyone's heart, except maybe an engineer. That satisfies them quite often. But, uh, but really, for normal people, that doesn't fix it. For normal folks, something else has got to happen. And it's a personal thing. It's understanding how do I fit into this? And does Jesus not just theoretically forgive sin and have the capacity to do so, but does He forgive me? And not just does Jesus' love uh, equal some infinity sign out there, but does Jesus love me? Until you've understood that, you haven't entered into the story of the gospel. So gospel preaching is telling a story to people about your own place in the story of the gospel. That's your testimony, is your story of how Jesus saved you. And then it's showing them what their place is in the story of the gospel. For instance, let's say I'm talking about the birth of Jesus, okay? Coming up in December, I don't know exactly what we've done here, but at my previous church, we would sort of stop working through the text of wherever we were, and we would do a little bit of talking about Christmas, and maybe I'd preach about the Incarnation, maybe whatever. In preaching through that, it's then my job as a gospel preacher to help you to see where you are in the story. Are you humble, Mary, receiving the words of the angel and responding in praise? Or are you the Magi, stumbling around in the desert, curious, wondering where this star is leading them, but not knowing a lot else? Are you baffled Joseph, who is finding himself with... His, the woman he's engaged to, suddenly pregnant and having questions, lots of questions about how that happened. Or are you Herod, who would rather kill Jesus than deal with him, who would rather kill Jesus and whoever else gets in his way of establishing a brutal, powerful rule over Israel? Well... Once we find out who we are in these stories, once we identify the role that we're playing, well, then the story becomes a little more applicable for us. It's not about somebody else. It's not history. It's my story. It's my story then. Now, this is all over the Old Testament. You say, Proverbs, this is very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing this. Problem is, you haven't really quoted any scriptures to talk about that yet. Good. That's the right place for you to be. Good job. 
If I wanted to, I would now survey the entire prophetic tradition of the Old Testament and point out that them coming and saying, Thus saith the Lord to you, thus saith the Lord, here's what I think about your situation and here's your past, present, and future that's going to happen to you if you do not repent. That's what I'm talking about. But let's look at Jesus for a moment. Jesus asks over 150 questions in the New Testament. And those questions weren't because he didn't know the answer. Those questions were about drawing people into his story, into his messianic mission, and asking them, so what part do you play in what's going on here as I walk around in sandals and a robe telling people about the coming kingdom? What part do you play in it? What kind of seed are you? What kind of tree are you? What kind of soil are you? Why are you afraid? Who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus did all the time. You say, oh, that's very interesting, Pastor, but we looked at your resume and you're not Jesus. And so maybe you could, that could just be an exception. Let's look at Peter, because all true gospel preaching is based on the pattern of preaching that you see in the book of Acts. People who've gone to school and studied these things call that the kerygma. They call it the the pattern of preaching that you see happening in the book of Acts. And what does Peter do as he's preaching in Acts chapter 2? He says to the crowds... As he's telling the story of Jesus, he then locates them as to what part they played in the story of Jesus when he says, and you crucified the Holy One. Now, he could have meant that literally in some cases. There could have been people in the crowd of four or five thousand that did actually, that did do it, okay? But that... Uh, pronoun there is, is, is more plural. It's y'all in English and proper English. And so he meant all of them. He located that crowd in the story of Jesus and he said, y'all crucified the Lord. And immediately they are now oriented like we heard about in the children's sermon. Good job, Chris. They're oriented now. Now they know where they are. They're not dispassionate students sitting back in their chair, being quiet and listening. They're criminals. And they're on trial. And they're guilty. And God's got them. And there's no way out. Nobody can be dispassionate in that situation. Nobody can just sit back and say, oh, that's a fascinating story you've told. Thank you very much for that. I will consider for myself about the impact in my life. No, you can't say that when the judge who is almighty and all-powerful is there and you just didn't kill some anonymous citizen that someone might not care about. You killed his son and he's going to care. So... Peter orients people to where they are in the story of Jesus and points 
out what's going on. Preaching places us in a story. It's the one true story that all good movies flow from, that all good adventures flow from. And it's the story of Christ and His redeeming love for His people where He sacrifices Himself for His people. And we can remain impassionate observers for a while as we're reading about the Old Testament and Moses, the sacrificial system, the, the land allocation tables of Joshua don't excite a lot of passion. I get that. But you reach a certain point in the story where they're crucifying Jesus. And you begin to put two and two together at some point, And you realize that it was my sin that made that cross so awful. That it was like I climbed up that cross and added weights to Jesus' shoulders by my sin, by my saying nasty things to my sister, by my screeching like a banshee at my husband, by my driving way too fast on these little swervy roads out here. And I'm talking to a lot of you. I know it. You guys are crazy. I'm going to be crazy like you in a few months, but right now it's scaring me to death. But then the twist comes in the story. We can remain laid back about it for a while, but then we realize it. I did it. This murder, this is not some murder she wrote thing where at the end we find out the gardener did it. No, suddenly it's you that did it. It's you that, that, that crucified Christ and that put that weight on His shoulders more and more and more. It's you that made Him cry out in agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we realize that, that's the part of the story where we can't be impartial observers. Now we are the accused. And now we have to figure out what we're going to do. Will we be the thief on the left or the thief on the right? What will we do? Will we be Pilate or will we be Pilate's wife? What will we do? Will we be the Roman centurion who knows to come to a man of authority to get things done? Or will we be the rich young ruler who can't stand when Jesus puts his finger on his idol and says, let's get rid of that one? Or will we be Peter? Or Peter? He kind of went back and forth a lot. How many people are Peter here in this room? I know I am. That's the preaching of the gospel. That's it. Not just the story of Jesus, but then it's you finding out where you are in the text, in the story, and then making the decision to trust Christ. Because 
in that courtroom situation where you're on trial, you killed the judge's son, suddenly the son walks in and says, Dad, I've got this one. And he holds out his hand to you. And you've got shackles on your wrists. And you've got a choice. You can reach up and take his hand and the shackles fall off, or you can sit there in chair and say, no, I got this, Jesus. I'll handle this. I'm a good person. I'm even homeschooled, Jesus. And I've got this. I know catechism questions, Jesus. There's no way I'm not getting into heaven. We've got a choice at that point. Now, if you think, and now we're about to really get back to the text. If you think, okay, well, that's an interesting way of putting that, Pastor. Thank you very much for that. But I want to think about this. I want to consider this for myself. I want to receive what you're saying as kind of this dispassionate, I will analyze what you have given me and then take that data and integrate it into my own system, my own personality, my way of thinking this through. The problem is, is that Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Therefore, that's a game changer. He's not someone who just came and did something and like in the Olympics, you analyze it. Okay, he gets a 10. That was good. And then that's kind of the end of it. It impresses you. You get that feeling that you get when you see the gymnastic people do this crazy stuff. They do. You're impressed by it. But then you're the judge. No. If Jesus is the power and wisdom of God, then He isn't someone we get to interpret and apply. He is the power of wisdom in God. And therefore, He gets to determine your response. It's before Him that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And only someone who is the power and the wisdom of God can say that and enforce that. So you don't actually have that kind of choice. You have a choice. But you don't have that kind of choice. Because Jesus is the one with all the power. Because it's the power of God. We can do a great study of the genitive and all of that that goes on there as to why I would say that. I'm saying that he's saying that all the power belongs to Jesus. And all of the wisdom belongs to Jesus. And so for us to sit there and try to figure out the right way to take this little Jesus nugget and bring it into our lives in some safe, careful way is a violation of Jesus being the wisdom of God. He's got it figured out how you are supposed to integrate Him into your life. And you integrate Him into your life the way dynamite is integrated into a house. It goes boom. And things blow up. And whatever's left, whatever can be shaken, will be shaken. And whatever remains is Christ holding on to you. 
And that's what you want. That and nothing else is what you've been seeking. It's what you're after. And you've been trying to take Jesus just a little bit at a time. Oh, I'm maturing in the faith. Adding Him just a little bit at a time to various areas in your life that you've already got figured out so you've figured out how He fits into them. I don't think it works like that. I think it's more like C.S. Lewis and Aslan and a giant lion who runs onto the scene and growls at you in such a way that you've got nothing. I was hunting one one day uh, in Mississippi, and it was close to the evening, and I was hunting uh, squirrels, so I had my 22, my little Marlin 22, and I was coming up base rows, thump, 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 heading back toward the house. And as I, uh, in the distance, the sun was setting, and in the outline of that, I could see a squirrel. I thought it was a fox squirrel, so I was very excited because I shot them for some reason. I'm sorry. And I said, oh, that's a big one. That's going to be a good supper. So I'm walking toward that, very focused on that. I get about 30 yards from the tree line. And all of a sudden, some large wildcat lets loose a scream that I had never... I had heard real low, quiet versions of it in the woods before, but I had never heard it directed at me. My legs gave out from under me. I literally fell on the ground. I could not, I lost my strength. I lost my will to hunt. I was not thinking about that anymore. That's Jesus. That's what happens when you encounter the risen Lord. You lose the ability to be calculating and consider His words carefully and integrate them into your lifestyle. It's just Jesus and He's on top of you and He's roaring and that's it. There's nothing to figure out. There's nothing to, there are no adjustments to be made in that scenario when two giant clawed paws are on top of your shoulders and you're looking at nothing but teeth and tongue and gaping hole. There's no figuring it out. It's just you and Jesus. Now you may not have heard it explained that way before. When I grew up in the Baptist church, the way I heard the gospel explained repeatedly was Jesus is at the door of your heart. And he's knocking on the door of your heart. And he's asking to come in. Won't you please let him in? And then they would do just as I am. There's a part of that that's true-ish that you could get from Revelation where you see that an image kind of like that. Uh, Jack Miller, Dr. Jack Miller, told the story in a slightly different way that I have always felt captured more the spirit of that. He said, it's more like we're in our house living our life the way we want to live it. And Jesus comes up to the doorbell, but he doesn't ring it. He sneaks around back and goes, crawls into a window and goes into your basement. 
And in your basement, he gets a bunch of oily rags. And he piles them up in one of your laundry baskets that you've got laying around. And then he takes his lighter out and sets it on fire and blows on it and gets it going real good. And it starts smoking. It starts making a fire. It catches the other things in your basement on fire. You know what they are. Lots of paper, lots of clothes, lots of stuff down there in the basement. And it all starts catching on fire. And you know the way oily rags make a smoke. It's a dark smoke. It's like you set a tire on fire down in your basement. And so the smoke starts boiling up inside the house. And so you start running around trying to find it, trying to put it out. You're on Google. You're looking things up. You know, 12 tricks firefighters don't want you to know. You're looking it up in there. And finally, you get desperate. Finally, you realize you've got no hope. Finally, you can't breathe anymore. And you run out the front door and Jesus catches you in his arms. And he hugs you. And he holds you. And he won't let go. (laughs) No matter what, he won't let go. If Jesus is the power and wisdom of God, then it makes sense that surrender to Him means surrendering our power and our wisdom and our self-atoning plans that we have. It means surrendering to Him our substitution of His gospel of people-pleasing, that I will resolve all the tensions in my world, all the sin problems of the world with me. I will be Jesus, and I will please everyone, and that will solve everything. No. It means, Jesus, take my life and, 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 and do whatever you want with it. And if, and if the first thing he does is take you away from the American dream buffet that most of our culture is feeding on and dining on. Okay. Why is it that when we read these passages about Jesus being the the power, and the wisdom of God, that we think that we're going to come to Christ and that He's not going to change anything. (laughs) I mean, think about it. If you had all power and wisdom right now, wouldn't there be some things you would adjust in the world today? No. You're going to go through some change. If Jesus is the power and wisdom of God, He's going to bring about change in your life that will be dizzying to you, surprising to others, and downright confusing. Well, Reformed theology experts, homeschool moms, Bible studiers, master's degree holders, missionaries. Your 
own way of approaching Christ so far. Like Isaac must be laid upon the altar. And if God gives it back to you, fine. What I'm asking you today is to lay your idea about Jesus and Christianity on the altar. Maybe you'll get some of it back. Maybe you won't. But what you will end up with are the covenant promises of God. What you won't end up with is worshiping an idol, a fake Jesus that you made up in your mind, or an idol of your own morality and self-righteousness, and then you'd have to die to find out what a fool you were. That's what won't happen. What I'm sure is that this morning that Jesus is in your basement. He's piling up oily rags. Robert does woodworking. There's a lot of sawdust laying around. It's going to be a good fire. So what's next? What are you going to do when the smoke comes coming, starts coming up through the vents? I don't know. But I do know that Jesus loves you and He's waiting for you outside the door. Let's pray.